Welcome to the Awoken Word Podcast. This is Anudra Sogi. In case you hadn't noticed in the first 11 episodes, I am your host. I wanted to thank everyone once again for all the support and the love for the podcast. Uh, seeing the traffic and the listens and the downloads and, and hearing some of the feedback both firsthand and through messages is always humbling. I do really appreciate any of the time that anyone's taken to listen to the conversations that we've had here. Also wanted to announce that with this episode, it thereby concludes season one of Awoken Word. And I know what you're thinking. I didn't know there was seasons to this podcast. Well, I'm telling you there's seasons to this podcast. And it's exciting because that means there's a season two coming. And all I can say is that there is a lot of really good stuff lined up. If you are enjoying this podcast, which if you've been listening all this while, I'm assuming you are, otherwise you are a glutton for punishment, tell your friends, tell your enemies. Uh, in the past, I think I've talked to people who may have pet iguanas. I don't care what kind of pet, what kind of animal, what kind of ferns or plants or foliage you have. Just share the word. Subscribe, check us out, leave a review in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to this. Now, today's episode is exciting because I think part of the reason that I wanted to start this podcast in the first place is because there's conversations with certain people along the way that have really triggered some interesting thoughts or provoked some insights. And today's guest is just one of those people. On this episode, I'm talking to Ali Rizvi, and for some of you, that name may be familiar. He is a physician. He is a musician. He may also be a magician. That we didn't really cover, but who knows. He's a published author and has written the book, The Atheist Muslim, which in and of itself is not only a provocative title, but also quite a provocative book. He is also the co-founder and co-host of the Secular Jihadists podcast, which is available on all platforms and honestly is a podcast worth checking out, both for the whimsical opening, but also for the conversations that are had with some really interesting people and interesting guests on topics that quite often folks shy away from having. And in some ways and in some circles, Ali is kind of a big deal, not only for his writing, but also for his public speaking and sharing his opinions through both his writing and his public talks. He is definitely a veteran of one of my favorite podcasts, the Joe Rogan podcast. He was actually on with Joe, I think back in 2015. So a lot of what he has to say has resonated with a number of you know, well-known individuals from having Sam Harris on his podcast, as well as Steven Pinker, to a number of other intellectuals and thinkers on a number of subjects as it relate to our contemporary grappling with religion and secularism and atheism and all of these manner of subjects that are very much a dynamic, ongoing conversation in today's world. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with Ali. I've always enjoyed talking to Ali, actually. We've known each other for some time. We used to shoot the shit grab a coffee and just, you know, have conversations that would meander around every conceivable topic. So today's conversation is no different. For the people who know Ali and know his work, know his writing, for many of his very public thoughts about a number of topics. As a friend, we really get to know Ali today a little bit more, I think, as the man behind the myth, if you will. 
As well, I would be remiss if I didn't give a big shout out to our mutual friend Spitz. Spitz, you know who you are. You've been kind of behind the scenes in guidance and advice and feedback, and uh, I really appreciate that. And I know you're a greedy little man, and you've only been listening to the podcast because you were waiting for that one day when you would get the shout out. Well, I made you wait a whole 12 episodes. Here you are, you greedy little man. If you are enjoying this podcast, please spread the word. Please share, like, do all the good stuff. I am really excited about concluding season one, mostly because season two is just awesome. I also want to thank all of the guests that we've had on the podcast through season one. So here you are, episode 12, Ali Rizvi. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring this podcast my love letter to all of you. The Awoken Word Podcast. All right, here we are. I am here on the Awoken Word Podcast with a friend of mine, Ali Rizvi. I haven't seen you in a long time, man. I know. It's really good to see you again. This has been fun. What has it been, like, at least a year? Uh, like, yeah, I think about it. It has been, yeah. Something like that. So where do we begin? Well, I mean, we kind of just launched into it, right? Like you showed up, we took a few pictures and then, you know, we just shot the shit. Yeah, we did. And I was thinking when we were talking earlier, I was like, well, should we save this stuff for the podcast? Because actually it was like, I forgot how much fun it was talking to you. No, you know, it, it's, it's hilarious yeah. actually that happens because you're like, oh shit, we just said that thing that we should have just saved for the conversation. Yeah. But like, I have that tendency all the time. Yeah. I think everyone who has a podcast every time they have a good conversation like oh shit that should have been a podcast which i think is <laughs> kind of sad so yeah anyways ali you're here it's been a while since i've seen you and when i first met you i didn't know all the things you did and i came to learn later on that you were a physician musician author etc so who the hell are you i i just like doing things that i like to do and I like taking them to the max. So I was, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pathologist. I specialize in cancer pathology. I've always been a science geek. Um, I've also, you know, done molecular biology. I've, it all, so the science thing is one thing. Uh, but then I also grew up, the way that I grew up, I grew up in three different countries, you know, on two different continents. I grew up in, well, three different continents, actually. So I grew up in Libya and Saudi Arabia and in Pakistan, and then I worked in the U.S. for about five years. And you know, I'm, I'm Canadian. I live in Canada. Canada's where I mm-hmm. eventually chose to make my home. So I've been all over the place. And there's that. So I'm a writer as well. I mean, you can't do that and see things around you, and right? Hear the news and watch TV, and then think and 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 not think. Well, you know, they're missing something. There's right. a perspective here that they're not seeing, and maybe. I can share my perspective and they can learn from it. So I, that's why I started writing. So became, yeah, I just like doing things I like to do. It's a, you know, we're only here for a certain amount of time. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So for those people who don't know what a pathologist is, people like me. Yeah. Because quite honestly, I can't remember right now. What is a pathologist? So a pathologist is basically um, the study of disease in the human body. So, it's a medical specialty 
and actually, let me just explain it to you from from your point of view. You go to the doctor and they say, well, there's something, hopefully this doesn't happen to you, but you know, uh, there's a mass in your lung. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take out some tissue and we're going to see what it is. So then they send it to us, the pathologist. We tell them if it's benign or malignant. Uh, if they take a bigger chunk of it, we can tell them whether it's, uh, you know, at how big it is, what stage, what grade. Uh, and based on that direction, your surgeon or your medical oncologist would decide how to treat it. So we're essentially consultants for other physicians. So we, we never really directly see patients unless it's too late. And I'll come to that in a second. But uh, we uh, we do consult. We we deal with patients. It's kind of funny that you're the brown guy that doctors outsource to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of. <laughs> and then, um, I mean, I, I don't practice as a yeah. pathologist anymore, but uh, I really liked it. The other thing we do is we do autopsies. So a lot of the stuff that you see on CSI, that's a certain kind of pathology. It's called forensic pathology, but there are medical autopsies too. Okay. People who die in the hospital after a long illness and people don't know why it happened, you know, sudden death. And you, uh, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be sudden, but then you go ahead and you diagnose and you figure out what caused that death and you do studies. And that's actually another reason why I do a lot of things is I did pathology we had to do about 80, I can't remember the exact number, but around 80 autopsies mm -hmm. in order to um, be eligible to take the boards. 80 autopsies just to do the boards. Yeah. So, and th wow. this is over a period of about four years, sure. five years. Uh, so, and I, I did my residency and fellowship in the US. And I started noticing, I spent a lot of time in the morgue. Initially, it used to scare me when I first started, mm -hmm. uh, but then I started getting more. Um, comfortable with it and i realized that living people are a lot scarier than dead people you know what what are the dead people in the morgue gonna do mm -hmm. to me nothing so i i started finding it more peaceful i started thinking about a lot of things i noticed that every time you know you see a, a body on a table that i'm about to cut into i mean this is a person i can't tell i mean they're 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 naked with a toe tag and they're dead and they're cold and i don't know if they were rich or poor. I don't know if they're homeless or billionaire. Hmm. I don't know if they died surrounded by loved ones, if they died completely alone. Um, all I knew was I looked at it and I looked at them and I thought, I'm going to go this way too. And I remember being in my mid-30s and thinking, why am I not doing everything that I want to do? Right? And that's also one of the answers to your question. Right. About, you know, why not just do things? Eventually... You know, what are we saving up for, really? What it's funny because I was just about to ask you, what did you learn about life, if anything, from being around the dead? If you want to learn about life, think about death every single day. And I don't mean that in a morbid way, mm -hmm. but it just it makes things easier. I, I, you know, no matter how bad things get, this sounds like a pro-suicide thing. <laughs> I'm not saying this in that context at all. But um, no Kids matter stay how in bad, school. <laughs> yeah, no matter how bad things get, there's going to be a way out that is peaceful, that is just going to be, you can end it all at any time you want. All right, And, and it's a choice not to. And if it's mm -hmm. a choice not to, you can, you can always sort of try to figure out a way. I mean, you know, there's there's always something. I mean, I think if you think, if you if you constantly remember that one day you are going to die and all of this is going to be over, it makes every second of your life 
um, that much more meaningful. It's strange, but every single person who's alive right now has this disease that's called life, and every one of us is dying. Yeah. Some perhaps sooner than others because of the particular situation they might be in or the particular disease, but we are all dying, and yet we... I don't know why we, we're just constantly running from that, that thing that you can't run from, at least not in our lifetime, maybe in our children's lifetime. But that should be a motivator for people. I, I, I yeah. found it to be a very powerful motivator. Um, and I, and th- that was what turned I, – I think it took away my fear of death. Um, and I get – so you know, I, I, I wrote a book, as you know, mm-hmm. called The Atheist Muslim. And one of the things that I get – questions about a lot as an atheist living in, a, in the Muslim community who was raised in the Muslim community mm-hmm. is what about after you die? Aren't you scared of what's going to happen? And I, I actually was more fearful of it when I was religious because I, you can't be perfect. There's so many rules mm-hmm. and every, you know, I was just thinking, am I, am I going to go to hell for this? Am I going to go to hell for this? Is this a sin? And then, you know, when I let all that go and I grew out of it, it was just so much more liberating because I thought 13.8 billion years right. I didn't exist. And all of these amazing things happened, right? All the planets formed, the stars formed, um, you know, the Arabs discovered oil in the deserts. And <laughs> like, I'm quoting airplane here. Yeah, yeah. But just, you know, JFK assassination, we landed on the moon. I didn't notice anything yeah, because I wasn't around until 1975. And then I showed up, you know, I didn't feel that first 13.8 billion years. So how bad could it be afterwards mm-hmm. if I don't know I exist? And initially that that is a jarring thought when you first try to grapple with it. But with time, it's very comforting. But do you think it's particularly jarring because we spend the first part of our life conditioned to think that there's something particularly amazing about this and and i i do believe this life and this you know the fact that we're conscious and having this conversation and do things is particularly amazing but that fear is almost conditioned into us in some way yeah it it has to be and that, i think that is a root of all human sort of the, the conflict that all humans at there we're all at war within ourselves mm-hmm. because Every living thing has an instinct of self-preservation. Right. It wants to survive. So went from bacteria to amoebae to – and I, I remember when I was a kid and I used to run after ants. Like ants are just really basic creatures. They don't have the um, the the capacity to understand mortality that sure, they're going to yeah. die. But they still run away from you if you try to run after them because they know that there there's a fear mm-hmm. that you know they're going to die. And – so we have the same instinct of self-preservation that that a bacterium or an ant does, but we also have the the capacity, the the neurological capacity, and the you know the intelligence to understand that we are going to die one day, and this is a conflict that is irresolvable. Mm-hmm. We know we're going to die. We don't want to die. We have the same instinct of self-preservation, but we just know it's going to happen. It's inevitable. And that is, I I think that that really is a root of all conflict. That's a, that that's a struggle that we have, all of us. And uh, what I you know I can't remember the quote. I think it's a Woody Allen quote where he said that life is just a distraction. Mm-hmm. You know, we just have to figure out a way to distract ourselves from the fact that we're all going to die, and that that's you know how you define life. Right, it's a meaning of life. But 
Um, I, I just don't, it, it's just, I don't think of it in an ominous or cynical way. I just, um, think of it in a very positive way. I mean, we're very, yeah. very fortunate. I think we're, we are, we're fortunate, but I also think at least in some parts of the world or in some microcosms, so many of us are so removed from death, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, unless you've seen it in your family or you happen to be in a neighborhood where it's fairly common or you're living in a part of the world where either through disease or violence or instability or any number of reasons, you're just, it's around you. A lot of us, particularly in, you know, developed countries like this, we just, we never see it, right? We never experience it. Our relationship with it is through movies and television and then it's glamorized and whatnot. And I think in distancing ourselves from it so much, we also probably create more of a fear gap at the same time and misunderstanding around the thing. Like I know at least in, in cities like Benares in India, like they do something like, I don't know, thousands of cremations a day. And there's people like, there's just, you know, dead people being like brought in from all over the world all day. And they're being cremated on these, like on these cots by the river. And it's an industry, but like, if you're around death to that degree, I think you'd probably get somewhat desensitized to it. Yeah. But, you know, and that's the other extreme from where we are, where everything feels in a lot of ways, very sanitary. I mean, you're an exception because of being a physician, been close to it. Uh, yeah. No, I, I get it. And I, I, I think that there is a, there's a difference between being desensitized to death and then consciously being exposed to it so you can get certain insights from it. And I, I think that's what I did because when I was younger, I was scared of death too. I, I was mm-hmm. born into, I mean, my, my parents are both professors, you know, we were, they, they were well off. I, I wasn't, I was born into a privileged family. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when I, when I was very young, I think I was five years old. That's the first time I saw somebody die. And it was my cousin. She was three years old. And, uh, you know, I wrote about this in the book as well. And, you know, so she had leukemia and this is in the early eighties where they don't, they didn't have a cure for it. Now that kind of childhood leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia now has a cure rate of over 90%, well over 90%. It can be cured, not just treated, but cured. Wow. Okay. At that time it didn't. So I saw her, you know, we, you know, in our culture, you know, when she, when she was dying, she was at home, she was in, in the room and uh, all of us came into the room so, you know, I was that I ended up watching that cancer death. And then a few years later, maybe about 6 or 7 years later, uh, my dad's older brother died um in Karachi in Pakistan we were visiting. So, I became very fascinated with death at a very early age. I became very scared of it too. I was also surrounded by a lot of uh, sort of religious superstition, especially growing up in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So many things were punishable by death. Um everything that happens after you die, being buried, and then, you know, people coming to you in the grave and asking how you lived your life. So many different things. Uh, so, so I got very interested in it when I was in high school. I used to listen to a lot of death metal. I used to play a lot of death mm-hmm. metal. A lot of the songs I wrote um, were about that. And so I, I think that when I did decide eventually to go into pathology, um, it was purposeful. It was, I have a habit of if there's something that I fear I like diving into it. I like exposing right. know, with huh. exposure therapy. Just you go into it, expose yourself to it um, until you're not scared of it anymore. With the exception of cockroaches. I'm, I'm scared to death of cockroaches okay. and I still don't want to go near them. Did you have a run in with a cockroach when you were a kid? I, lots of, I grew up in Pakistan and I've been, you know, sitting in the bathroom. 
I couldn't move, didn't know what to do, and there's a cockroach flying around. They're the ones that the big ones that fly mm-hmm. around. It's terrified. I still remember those. But anyway, <laughs> apart from that, but with with death, it's you know in in pathology, what we did was I was doing autopsies. I wasn't just exposed to death, or I wasn't just seeing one of my patients dying. I mean, I, my job was to cut into them, literally put my hands in and 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 dive into it and figure out what happened. And really dissect, literally dissect and analyze every aspect of it. So it was that that exposure, I think, and that is what made me eventually, um, the fear just went away. And that it's just not something I'm scared of. I'm scared of pain. I'm scared right. of dying a painful death. I mean, I don't like the idea of drowning or anything, but dying just does not scare me anymore. And once that fear goes away the liberation that you feel is indescribable. What did you learn about the people that you're doing these autopsies on about their lives? Just from a body with a toe tag, what are you able to discern about a person knowing nothing else? That's the thing. You can't, you know, there are, I guess everybody is equal. The ultimate equality is in death, you know, rich, poor, black, white, male, female, cis, trans, anything, young, old. I mean, everybody is equal when you're dead. And, you know, you you see things and you wonder about it. And there are many times I thought about it. Um, there are many thoughts that went to my mind. There, there are times when I made certain assumptions that I was embarrassed of. You know, I, uh, <laughs> there was this, I guess I can tell you the story. There was, there was someone who died who had sort of a really late stage lymphoma, mm-hmm. right? Which is which is a, a a tumor of the blood cells, the cancer of the blood cells, a solid cancer of the blood cells, and and you know when we did the autopsy, we found this sort of uh, wax, like you know, like candle wax type stuff mm-hmm. uh, in his rectum. Okay. Okay, and. Nowhere else, just in the rectum. And I remember I was with my supervisor and we could not figure it out. Like, what was he doing with the candle? Like, this is stage four lymphoma. He was probably miserable. He couldn't do anything. And then I went and I read the file and it turned out that, you know, he had very severe constipation and he had to use suppositories. And that's what it was. So mm. I felt horrible about it, you know, making that assumption. I This is a weird answer to your question, sure, of yeah, course. Yeah. But... That's what I'm saying. You, you just can't assume things. I mean, people are... The, the only thing I learned about people was that everybody's the same when you die. It's a great yeah. equalizer. It really is. I'd seen this, um, I think it was on Twitter just a little while ago. There's some ER trauma surgeon put up this photo, and it wasn't a photo of the actual patient. You couldn't see any face in it or anything, but it was basically the photo of torso of this man and had some white nationalist tattoo and the tweet was that, you know, there's a Indian senior nurse and a Muslim surgeon and basically a whole melange of people who were mm. part of the medical team who's taking care of this patient, you know, in this time of surgery and saying that our job is to look past all of this. You know, we're helping this guy who may well believe that we shouldn't even be here. And I just thought it was interesting because, first of all, there's a bunch of backlash. People like, how dare you as a medical professional publish a photo? And he said, this is just a random photo from Google, but this is the tattoo that he had. But it was it was interesting because just in that one photo of that one tattoo, and you've got this team of medical professionals around, they're 
drawing conclusions about him and then drawing conclusions about what this guy might think about the team that's taking care of him and whatnot. Yeah. And I, I just thought there was something really interesting about about that because just based on this image on the guy's body, you can probably draw some conclusions. How real they are, how relevant, how recent they are is, is hard to say, but it's, it's yeah. interesting. That, that's, I mean, if you, if you have tattoos that specifically say something, you know, if you if you have uh, if you have a guy who's died and he's got like you know white power forever tattooed on his chest, then yes, of course you can you can tell something you know about them mm-hmm. and and who they are. But it's also you know people. It, it is humbling, just in general, to see this guy who thought you know well he had some sort of advantage because he was white, or for whatever any kind of supremacist that you are. You know, sure, it's, it's yeah, not yeah. just white supremacy, but. The people, again, when they're dead, they're just dead. They're, they're just as dead. dead as everybody else is. And their bodies decompose like everybody else. I mean, they're not preserved in any, any special way. Whether you're white or black, you're still going to, you know, you're still going to be decomposed the same way. You're still going to be eaten by the same worms. You're still going to smell like shit if someone, you know, after, if you've been left out too long. It's just, uh, it's it's all the same hmm. eventually in the end. So you you shit on religion a lot, um, <laughs> yeah. and your podcast, the Secular Jihadists. First right. of all, I think is one of the most epic openings ever. I don't know, like <laughs> the whole the the whole voiceover and the thing about the spaghetti monster and the music. When I first heard it, I didn't even know what the hell to think. And if I didn't actually know you, uh-huh. I'd be like, "What the fuck is going on here?" But it's it's pretty epic. Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, like you obviously, you know, for for those who know you and your work, you have a few things to say about religion. Yeah, your journey as an individual, as an author, from the worlds of science to me, at some point, did you outright just reject religion, or did you just never buy into it in the first place? No, I did buy into it uh, in, a, in a big way. I went through phases when I was very religious. I went through phases when uh, you know I was moderately religious. Then I also went through phases where I was trying to justify things. You know, like you know, people like were. We, I was in a Muslim family, so it was all about the Quran. You know, mm-hmm. the Quran was a source of everything: truth, morality, and. Uh, there, there was a time when I looked at it and like you know, well, this is a word of God, so it has to be true. So this thing here about, you know, how, you know, you're allowed to beat your wife, this doesn't fit with me. So I have to find a way to justify mm. it to myself and to make it palatable. So maybe I, I can look at alternative interpretations. Maybe I can figure out what the context was and make it seem somehow better. Um, and eventually I realized that I wasn't getting my morality from the Quran. I was using this inherent sense of morality that I already had to interpret it. Mm-hmm. So why even have a middleman? Almost maintaining morality in spite of it. I- exactly. Yeah. Right. So I mean, if you look at the the Old Testament, which is also supposed to be a holy book revealed by yeah. God, I mean, it says right there. And th- this is why I I actually with with religion, I'm I'm not just an atheist. I'm an anti theist. I, I actually think it's a net harm okay. uh, to people, especially when you go through the scriptures and you see the kind of things that are in there. And in Deuteronomy 22, it says that if there's a a woman who's found not to be a virgin on her wedding night, she should be taken to her father's doorstep where the people of the town will stone her to death. So, you know, you read stuff like that. And Leviticus 20.13 says that, you know, if there are two men who sleep together, kill them. Mm -hmm. It's a punishment for homosexuality. So 
it's amazing to me that when you hear Pat Robertson or someone say the same thing, everybody jumps on him. Look, you know, he says this is what he said. But when it's in a book that a billion or like two billion people in the yeah. world revere, uh, we have a completely different standard. And I think that's uh, just uh, that's something that we have to talk about because these words do matter. I feel it especially strongly because I did grow up in Saudi Arabia. I have seen my mother being hit on the head with the stick of a one of their religious police because she didn't cover her hair. Um, I have seen them justify child marriages. I've seen, you know, Saudi Arabia go to Yemen and just uh, to get nine-year-olds, eight-year-olds, get married to them, bring them back. Um, it has been, and these things are justified in the name of religion and because and because their constitution is based on, the Saudi law is based on Sharia or right. based on Islamic law, uh, you can't argue against child marriage because, you know, Muhammad, the prophet of it's Islam. It's a literal interpretation. It yeah. is, yeah. It, I mean, they had, and it's a historical fact that, you know, he had a, a child bride, so... If you do it, it becomes blasphemous and you hit a conversational barrier and that compromises justice. It compromises the reason that we oppose Trump here, the reason we don't like all of the divisiveness and the racism and the, you know, the, the misogyny and mm-hmm. the homophobia, all of those things we are fighting against when Trump does them. But they are all endorsed by especially the Abrahamic religions. Unfortunately, do you think that religion ever served a net positive purpose? I think that the positive purpose that religion serves, one thing that the secular and atheist community has not been able to give people. I mean, there's several purposes that it serves. One is that it gives people comfort and lets them know that things will be okay. There's justice out there. You know, if you look at my aunt who lost her five-year-old, her three-year-old daughter, you know, who died, who, who I told you mm-hmm. died of leukemia. She became very religious after her death. And she also lost another child after that as well. So she went through a lot. So it's, you know, she had to feel like there has to be some justice out there. Why is the world so unjust? Because the world is, nature is mm-hmm. very unjust. Um, our survival evolution the way that it works is survival is you have to kill other living things to survive you have to eat other living things you have to fight them for territory for mates for food Mm -hmm. um it's a very cruel process and you know that means that there's a lot of injustice in the world uh and people who go through that they want something to make them feel comfortable but do you think nature in and of itself like ignore all the meddling that humans do but nature in and of itself is it just or unjust you know you've got predators eating prey like is that an unjust situation yeah i I think it is unjust i mean the way that evolution works is you know there's a famous example of the cheetah and the gazelle Mm -hmm. um to survive what does the cheetah have to do the cheetah has to catch the gazelle and eat it what does the gazelle have to do the gazelle has to run faster so it can run away from the cheetah so with every evolutionary cycle these both of these species they're evolving and they're being tuned uh, the cheetah's being tuned to running faster and that the gazelle's being tuned to run faster away from it, right. which is really a sadistic game. I mean, if you thought of this like a, if somebody was actually, whoever's pulling the strings is like, well, let's see, let's make them better at what they're doing and uh, let's let's see how fast they can, uh, you know, whether the cheetah's going to go hungry or whether the gazelle's going to die. Uh, that That's the basic way that it's, it's a sort of, 
prototype of how everything in evolution works. And but it's like, I mean, just as a thought experiment, though, and I don't know who coined this, but this idea that you could look at the Earth, for example, as just this spinning quasi-spherical object in space with some liquid and a bunch of trees and stuff growing on it, a bunch of things running around and crawling around and whatnot. Or you could look at it as an organism that grows these things, like an ecosystem in and of itself. Even within our body, we have cells that are living and dying and decomposing and being excreted and whatnot. There is sort of that you know positive and negative always at play, but in order to give the entire organism life in a way. like mm. So if you didn't have that cycle going on, then there would be nothing. The, the, the reason I'm asking is I, I just recently stumbled across um, Azim Sharif. He's a professor out of UBC mm. who is a psychology professor in social sciences. And he actually said some pretty interesting things I thought about. He's basically looking at religion and evolution, cultural evolution. And he's basically coined or been one of many people who've coined these theories around how religion is actually, if you look at it in a Darwinian interpretation and with evolutionary mechanisms, we started off in small hunter-gatherer populations, 40, 50 people, maybe larger groups or 100, 150. But we've evolved as a species to be able to collaborate and cooperate with only that many people, enough people that we know well. And the moment the group gets too large, you don't trust each other because you don't know each other. You can't cheat the group when you're in a small group because everyone will see that you're freeloading or that you're lying or whatnot. But as soon as a group gets larger, there's increasing incentives to cheat and lie or to freeload. So... In some of what I heard him talk about, he sees the cultural evolution of religion as being the thing that you need some larger force to create fear so that people collaborate. So when people are of the same religion or the same faith, it's almost a signal to the other that this person is trustworthy. And the moment you can go from trusting just the people you know to trusting strangers on the basis of something, that's when we go from 100, 150 people to millions of people. And so he, he kind of sees that as almost an evolutionary trajectory. He himself, I believe, is an atheist. Yeah. But it was, it was um, kind of an interesting interpretation. Yeah, I, I actually agree with that. And I think that religion is just one of many things that do that. And, and this is an interesting thing. And, and you're right. You know, any kind of large tribe, like, for instance, if you're a Republican, mm-hmm. you know, you will think oh, there may be someone you don't know at all but you know that they're a Republican. You're going to think this person's on my side. You're going to trust them a lot more than a Democrat. Yeah. Or, you know, and nationalism, if you know that someone's from the same country as you, mm-hmm. right, and, and they're also a patriotic Polish person or Canadian, whatever. Sure. Um, you're going to trust them a lot more because they come from the same place. And the same thing goes with religion. But uh, the important thing that he, that he said, yes, religion was a way for people to come up with a way to um, keep everybody in line and, and to... You know, I guess, what's the thing? Graze your cattle in the middle or graze your sheep in the middle of the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they, they don't go too far towards the edge. So it, it was a manipulative, uh, it is a manipulative tool that's used, been used by the powerful to keep the masses in check. Right. And um, I completely agree with that. But, uh, you know, what, when I'm talking about evolution, I'm talking about biological evolution. Right. Um, so biological evolution is, and, and this is, it's a tough thing because, you know, I grew up, knowing that evolution is true like evolution mm-hmm. is a fact uh, we know that simply from you know genetics we know our genome now we've studied right. the genomes of 
of many, many species and the genomes, they make it clear that all of us evolved from, you know, one common ancestor about four and a half billion years ago. Right. Um, before that, there was a fossil record. You don't even need the fossil record now um, to, to show it. And when you had the fossil record, that was enough mm-hmm. to, to essentially prove it. Um, and, and the most important thing is we see it happening in front of our eyes. Antibiotic resistance. You know about yeah. antibiotic resistance. Yeah. So, you know, the, the virus mutated and became resistant to the drug. You know, an adverse circumstance comes in, uh, the viruses mutate to survive. And then now you have, like with HIV, you've got HIV-1, then you've got two, you have all these other types. Um, with bacteria, you know, you see, like, increasingly our antibiotics are becoming uh, more and more useless. And it's only been a matter of decades. Right. Uh, so we have seen that evolution happen right in front of our eyes. Uh, and and we constantly we continue to see it happening. So so it is absolutely real, and it is a it's a process of survival, mm-hmm. but it's also a process of death. I mean, the vast vast majority of species that ever existed have gone extinct. Have died off, yeah, yeah, right. And um, the, we have been able to counter it. I think humanity and civilization has been able to counter uh, the the injustices of evolution. So in a way, we are a little bit better. The nature, right. uh, you know, if if I lived uh, several millennia ago, uh, right now, you know, I wear glasses because without them, I'm virtually blind. Right. At that time, I wouldn't have survived. Now I have glasses. I can wear yeah, glasses yeah. and I'm sitting here doing this podcast yeah. with you. So, so there's even little things like that we, we take for granted. I find this particularly interesting. The idea that there is biological evolution, got it. But the fact that we as a species have actually had cultural evolutions that have had direct biological impact. So the fact that we – I think it was in Sapiens because we were talking about Sapiens earlier. But the yeah. fact that we cook food and then when we cook food, we we spend several less hours a day chewing it. The length of intestines shortens because you don't need that much of a – intestinal length to be able to digest all of that food and now that surplus energy can be redirected to this massive brain that we have which is yeah. disproportionately larger than other mammals absolutely it, it, yeah cooking has a lot to do with for the sure. fact that we became smart but and, and that's a, and 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 that cultural evolution <clears throat> has actually had a physiological impact on us mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that religion necessarily does the the same thing but it's interesting that we are the only species so far that's actually taken some of that narrative into our own hands and also pretty much every other species has been locked to this planet right and if musk has his way eventually we're a multi-planet species and then maybe we survive yeah yeah we'll see i mean there's a you could extrapolate all kinds of to all kinds of places but yeah you're right you know we have been sort of we're aware Mm -hmm. that we are evolving between your book and speaking engagements and just being as vocal as you are on the topics of of religion and then with the podcast and and everything are spirituality and religion one in the same like do they kind of go in the same box for you are they two separate things is there room to be non-religious and still spiritual like how does this play out for you how does this play out for people you know yeah. i i have a hard time with the term spirituality because i i i i mean more than being anti-religion i'm sort of more of a uh, pro evidence kind of sure, guy. Like yeah, things yeah. for which there is evidence and do it so so spirituality is a very vague term um I get the sense of it if you're talking about the transcendence feeling the, the transcendent feeling that you get when when I was a kid, I would look up at the sky and I'd look at the stars 
And, you know, I it wasn't just Twinkle Twinkle Star. I, I would look up and think, holy shit, I'm looking back millions of years mm-hmm. of time. Yeah. Like what I'm looking at right now, the sky, this is what the sky look was actually like three million years ago. And the way it looks like right now, I can't see because the light hasn't reached my eyes yet. Right. Um, that feeling to me was spiritual. If I listen to really, really good music, mm-hmm. um, that to me is spiritual. If I if I am spending time, you know, with my daughter, right? There's some. I mean, you know that you have yeah. kids, and you know there, there there are certain spiritual moments that you have, you know, with with someone, your loved one, and the people that you care about. So. But those are all natural moments. There's nothing supernatural about them. So for me, the most quote-unquote spiritual or transcendent moments I've I've ever felt have been from the world around me. To me, that is much more awe-inspiring uh, than you know having to try and make something up and have it come from some sort of supernatural realm mm-hmm. that you know, I, I have no evidence for that exists. So, so for me, this is enough and it's actually a lot more, it's much more satisfying. And I, I sometimes feel like what, what people do in their search for spirituality is in a way they're, they're going out and trying to find things where, or make up things where they're not there. Mm -hmm. And they, that takes them away from the really amazing things that they have in their life. Right. Like the music, like looking yeah. up at the sky, like, you know, reading a book about astrophysics or, you know, listening to or watching a documentary from, you know, Carl Sagan or Richard Dawkins or, you know, there, there's so many things, uh, you know, just going to an art museum or visiting a historical site and just standing there. I mean, have you ever done that? Gone, gone to a place? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Historical site and just standing there and just soaking up, you know, okay, where I'm standing, what was happening here? Uh, you know, thousands of years ago and mm-hmm. look at where I am now. Look, at was just these thinking about these is so much in the natural world that can give you that transcendent sense. Um, and that can fill you with awe, uh, that I, I, I feel like if we look elsewhere for it, we are downplaying and sort of ignoring the stuff that's all around. Yeah. Us. You don't, you don't need to make up something when there is so much of that wonder all yeah. around. And and to answer your question about whether it's different from religion, I I think it's it's definitely re- different from religion. For me, when I found out, for instance, that um, time can stop, start, slow down, speed up, depending on the amount of gravitational force mm-hmm. there is. So the more gravitational force you have, the slower time gets. You know, when you're out in space, the, where the GPS satellites are, time ticks faster. Yep. So. And and that is a fact because they have to correct. They have for to it. correct for it. Yeah, they have to yeah. correct for it because time actually ticks faster in, in outer space than it does near the surface of the Earth. So I found that, and then you know, I read about the Big Bang, mm-hmm. and I read what Stephen Hawking wrote about it, and he talked about how you know at the Big Bang, and this is one of the theories, and you know, one of many theories, but um, it's a fairly accepted theory that at the time of the Big Bang. Uh, there was no such thing as time. Right, time did not exist. Space so, time are one. Yeah, one they're, thing, they're yeah. interrelated. Yeah. Uh, they're they're inextricable mm-hmm. from each other. But but it did not exist. So the Big Bang was um, when when people say what happened before the Big Bang, right? If you don't have time, if time doesn't exist. There's no such thing as before. Mm-hmm. Before is a it's a it's a 
it's a word that has temporal connotations that has sure, time-related yeah, yeah. connotations. Yeah. So, so you can't have a before. So it's like if you're standing on top of the earth on the North Pole, you're standing right on the North Pole, and someone says, walk north. You'd be like, what? That doesn't make any yeah. sense. I'm already on, on the, I'm standing yeah. on the point. Every direction um, is south. Yeah. Exactly. So um, you, when I realized that, I was like, there's no, I can't even imagine that. There's no such thing as time that there's no such thing as before. So if there's no before and after, there's no cause and effect, right? So you can't really have a cause causing, because cause comes before effect. And it it just put my mind into this, um, it's, it's just going in circles, but I was fascinated and amazed. Mm-hmm. And to this day, when I think about it, I'm amazed. And now take that feeling, that amazement, that awe, and contrast that with God said, let there be light, and there was light. And it just seemed juvenile and it seemed mm-hmm. just so human and so petty and small that I just couldn't imagine that, you know, if there is really a, an intelligent God out there who came up with this time dilation and binary pulsars and the process of evolution sure, and, yeah, yeah. and and this God is writing a book to his people worried about what meat they yeah, can eat yeah. or what, who they can have sex with and... On top of that, justifying uh, bad treatment of women and, and, mm-hmm. and gay people and endorsing slavery. And it's just the whole thing just uh, rubbed me the wrong way. I, I don't know who said it, but if God exists, God is either all good or all powerful. He or she cannot be both. Right? They can't be. So, you know, you have, I think Epicurus um, wrote the first iteration of this that I know. He said, Is God, um, is, is God willing to stop evil? You know, he was talking about mm-hmm. is God is either unwilling or unable, unable. Yeah, yeah, to stop evil. If he's unwilling to, right, then then he is not um, good. He's cruel. If he's unable to, then he's not God. And that's just a paraphrasing. He yeah. went on ahead and he talked about about a bunch of other things as well. So, you know, there's only a few ways that that you can cut it. And I, I'm not, you know, when people say atheist, I. I, I am open to the idea that there is, there could be an intelligent force out there that could be a higher intelligence in the universe. I just don't, I'm agnostic about that. I'm mm-hmm. 50 50. But when it comes to the kind of God who writes books and tells you how to treat your women and how much to pay for your slaves and, you know, things <laughs> like, and it blesses your marriages and, uh, you know, uh, and uh, cures your kid of uh, HIV. Apparently, you know, that's a credit, I guess, but you totally forget that, well, how did the kid get HIV in the first place? It also facilitated that. That that kind of God I'm, I'm atheistic about. I don't think that God exists. It's, it's really interesting for me, this the like conversations like this, because coming from a Hindu family that is, I wouldn't say like extremely religious, but definitely the ritual and the culture has uh, been yeah. a part of the backstory. And I think Abrahamic and Vedic religions and traditions take very different routes. They do. And perhaps it is factual that Zoroastrianism might be the one of the original major religions and influenced all these other traditions and whatnot. But even if that's true, the Vedic traditions took a very different direction. And at the same time, I could be at home where there could be some ridiculous ritual that makes no sense. You do this particular prayer or puja five times and then this will happen. It, within that same tradition is also this idea of eons of time, the cyclicality of time, and many 
fundamental sort of principles within Vedic math that are very much in alignment with, with modern physics and scientific yeah. thinking. And I think is ridiculous to discount it because it's ancient and not found on modern scientific empirical evidence, because I think there are different ways to come to a conclusion. And some of those might be experiential. There might be that if you've spent, if all you have to do is sit under a tree under the stars for hundreds of years and you've got no other agenda, the amazing things your mind could probably conjure up and tell us stories I think could be quite astounding. And so I've seen both the absolute ridiculousness of religion and the absolutely incredible canvas on which it's drawing from, because there's some things within the Vedic traditions that are just, to me, awe-inspiring. So I look at these two things and I'm like, how can these even be coming from the same place? It doesn't make any sense. And then I'm with you because there's been so many nights where I was a kid looking up at the stars and thinking, in fact, that the light I'm seeing right now, those stars may have already gone out Mm. and we won't know for millions of years at this point. And I had kind of the same kind of experiences that you're talking about. So it's like, we don't need to look beyond even the sensory world to be tapped into that awe. And yet we're constantly looking in these 700 or 2000 year old books, (laughs) trying to figure out these very mundane things in our life, which is just kind of ridiculous. Yeah, And and there's no doubt that there are things that you're going to see. Of course, there is wisdom in a a lot of sort of ancient traditions Mm -hmm. Like the study of religion for me, and I'm still very interested in it. I love looking at the history of it. I like reading the Quran, and you know, my my co-host says this, and I agree for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Armin Navabi, he said that it's ever since I stopped believing, and and he's in he grew up in Iran as a fundamentalist Muslim, and then he gave it up, and you know now he's an atheist, and he said that I enjoy reading the Quran a lot more now that I'm an atheist. And I completely agree with that. I, you know, with with the Bible, if you look at the, if you go to the Vatican, you know, we went there just a couple of years ago mm. to see there's, I mean, there's there's four rooms that are just covered wall to wall with, with art from Raphael. And one of them was, I think, his assistant, but the rest of them, you know, the, the ceiling of the Sistine cha- Chapel, all mm-hmm. of the sculpture, this, everything you see is amazing in and and religion, I think, is very powerful because of that. I, you mm-hmm. know, you were talking about sapiens, yeah. a Yuval Noah Harari book, and he talks about the importance of storytelling. And religion does that; does storytelling very, very well. It it packages up its messages yeah. in stories and in art, and those are the two things that emotionally connect with you most. Um, and and this happens. I mean, you, you know, Hinduism. Everything from dance to the kind of you know the clothing that yeah. the, the, the there's so many incredible artistic traditions. The music, like amazing music, it all comes. It, it, it's been part and parcel and integrated into the to the religious tradition. In Christianity, you've got the art and you've got the sculpture and you've got Da Vinci mm-hmm. and you've got Michelangelo and and in in Islam you have calligraphy, you yeah. have poetry, you have the way that the Quran is read, the tilawat they call it. And um, the way it's sung musically, the call, the prayer call yeah. is is stunning. Uh, some of the musical forms that came out of it in South Asia, you've got the Kawali form, yeah. right? So we've had these amazing things that have come out of it that are, but but I think it's a, um, I think it's more evidence of uh, how human it is. Like how sure, do these yeah, two yeah. things come together? That's why they come together because that's what human beings are like. Human beings are capable of coming up with amazing. Um, ideas mm-hmm. and amazing, uh, you know, creativity and innovation and and just things that that help you feel. And then they're also 
capable of monstrous evil and injustice yeah. and pettiness and jealousy and and, and 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 all these terrible vices and that is what religion is i mean the biggest problem i think the biggest thing that we should know i i want my daughter to learn about all the religions mm-hmm. i want her to know you know how people you know that cultural evolution that's right. associated with religion i want her to know i think every kid should learn about it uh, but the important thing to know is how to process truth because mm-hmm. even if something believing something that is false now, if you tell people this about Islam, Islam is not, terrorism is not the biggest problem with Islam. Now, the biggest problem with Islam is the same thing that is the biggest problem with all the other religions. And that is taking something on faith. Now, you know, when you have faith in something, that means that there's no evidence for it. Like I, I don't have, we're speaking into these microphones. Yeah. I don't have faith that these microphones exist. I know they exist. Mm-hmm. I have knowledge that they do. But faith, by definition, means you're believing something without evidence, evidence yeah. or which means that you're believing rumors, you're believing hearsay. And that is a bad habit to get into. Uh, I would like my daughter to grow up and ask if she's given a claim, no matter who it's coming from, Sure, yeah. to, to say, well, you know, what is the evidence? How do we know? Um, and if there's no answer for that, that's okay. Someday, maybe we'll find out, maybe we won't. We can keep it in our mind. We can be skeptical about it. That's Okay. But once you start believing things that are false, even if they're harmful, mm. you think in a way that later on when a demagogue comes up and Trump shows up and yeah. says the Mexicans are rapists and we have to build a wall, if you don't have your critical thinking skills and your skeptic skills in your in your mind, you are susceptible to mm-hmm. the manipulation of demagogues and, and people like that who will right. use the storytelling and the fiction and the but art. But that's by design, though. The very fact that you are susceptible, that one is ignorant and doesn't know better, isn't seeking out evidence or thinking critically, that's the reason why, whether it's religion or political dictators or you know some exploitative corporations, that's why they are in power, right? And they have a continuing running incentive to keep you dumb and ignorant and distracted. Like an intelligent populace that was well-informed and well-educated would not elect Trump, would not put up with the bullshit in the Catholic Church after decades of pedophilia and child rape and even rape of nuns within the Catholic Church or the stuff that's happened within a number of Hindu temples. Just the list goes on. But if we are ignorant and unaware of this stuff and we're buying it on faith, then we'll turn a blind eye to this stuff when we see it. We do, yeah. Or we'll rationalize it, right? Because I think if there's one thing humans do really well is rationalize anything. You can find some bullshit reason for why that specific thing needed to happen all the time. And we, we find a way to give ourselves comfort in that and pacify ourselves. And it might help in the immediate situation, but over the long term, it's not helpful. Yeah, there, there's a, uh, and, and you hit upon something really, we do defend and we do sort of justify the irrational, right? Mm-hmm. Because we grew up in that tradition or that is our tr- tribe. And, and a lot of that also has to do uh, with identity, Mm-hmm. The sense of identity. And I think one of the most sinister things, in, in my opinion, about religion is how it really gets your tentacles into your sense of identity. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. for instance, um, okay, so I'll give you a real-life example. I know a 16-year-old girl, right? She grew up, her parents you know, grew up in Pakistan. She came here. 
she was taught to wear the hijab, the the head cover, mm-hmm. you know, her her entire life because you know it's a symbol of modesty. Uh, you're supposed to not tempt men from looking at you, etc. And so uh, she, you know, the war growing up, she went to high school. Suddenly, you know, there's all these girls, you know, they're teenagers now. They're doing stuff with their hair, experimenting with makeup, you know, all the, and she wants to be, yeah, she yeah. wants to do all that too. Yeah. So she has this internal struggle with her parents. Why do I have to do this? It's not justified. Islam doesn't necessarily say this. It's vague in the Quran. She's coming up with all these different arguments about why she has to, wants to take it off. There's a, you know, so she's rebelling against the ideology mm-hmm. behind the headscarf. And then Trump shows up, the Quebec mosque shooting happens, uh, Muslim ban, this and that. And suddenly it's like, well, you want to, you think that my parents, my ancestors are less Canadian or less American uh, than you. You think that, you know, we should be banned just because we have a different heritage hmm. well screw you i'm keeping this headscarf on so now hmm. it's become a symbol of identity and 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 that's the thing when people say that do women wear the headscarf islamic women muslim women do they wear it out of choice um or are they forced to in a way it's both mm-hmm. like so he she was forced to by her parents so she had an ideological disagreement with it but when it came to identity it was a choice for her to keep hmm. it on because yeah, yeah. it became so and, and this is this is the problem with religion that it creates that kind of dichotomy in people. It forbids the scrutiny of ideas. Right? If someone from the Tea Party or someone from you know the, the Doug Ford's like party or whatever it is yeah. says something about women or says something about gay people. You know, we will rightly be outraged at it and we're going to push back on it. But if someone criticizes something, if I'm Muslim and someone comes up to me and criticizes something in the Quran that is misogynistic or homophobic, I will defend it. Not because I am misogynistic or homophobic, but because that is my identity. That was a religion yeah. of my parents and my ancestors. I take it personally. You draw a cartoon of Muhammad, I'm going to take it personally. And this is... And and this is what the problem is. That that's why in my book I talk about how we really need to drive home the point that discussion of ideas, challenging ideas, mm-hmm. yeah. is very different yeah. from demonizing people. Islam as an ideology is very different from Muslims as mm-hmm. as people. You know, you can criticize ideas, you can challenge them because ideas and books don't have rights. Human beings and people do have rights. Right. Um, and if you want to move a society, challenging societies is what has always moved societies forward. Challenging ideas has always moved societies forward, but demonizing people has always destroyed them. Yeah, I, I remember like it was years ago when you first said that to me that people have rights, ideas don't, um, or, or yeah. something to that effect. Yeah. And I, I think you were the first one I heard sort of put it that way. But you know, if we take a step forward from there, our entire world is run on these illusions of ideas. The corporation, a corporation today, by definition, has one objective, which is to maximize shareholder returns. Mm -hmm. And it is an entity with essentially all of the 
legal protections that an individual human would have with essentially none of the responsibilities because it gets litigated, the corporation can dissolve, the officers of the corporation. And we we saw this happen in the 08 financial crisis. We see this constantly happen with large corporations that are exploiting resources, people, what have you. But the corporation is an idea. Mm-hmm. It's not an individual, but we treat it in courts of law as if it is not even human, but superhuman. Yeah. So it's an idea that's been elevated in contemporary time. You know, corporations are not that old in the, in the construct they are. So we elevate religions. We associate our identities with it. We elevate perhaps certain historical figures. We elevate certain ideologies or political parties. We do the same thing with corporations. And at the end of the day... People as individuals get the short end of the stick. And I I find it amazing how time and time again, we find some weird way to give so much credence to these ideas and forget about the people at the same time, not treat the people with the same sort of regard. I I, I love that. I think I I agree with all of it. I think that when you... You know, we talk about corporations, and this is again, we, you know, we're going back to the, the Yuval Noah Harari yeah. thing. You know, where he, he's talked about corporations or how they're also fictions, just like religion mm-hmm. is fiction. And um, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think that the difference between something like corporations and religion is that people still revere religion, is still thought of as a good thing. If I told you, listen, there's this authority figure, and you have to believe everything they say as just the absolute truth you'd look at me like i was crazy mm-hmm. but that is exactly what we do with religion you know we take these sort of historical figures uh who were essentially you know politicians statesmen uh you know just leaders of people yep. uh, all of them were different but you know they had one thing in common is that they had a massive influence on huge masses of people and we took them at their word they said something was true and we just thought, okay, it's true. We got to believe it. And it's stuck for thousands of years. And uh, that really is the only difference. So the kind of um, religion is sort of like the only uh, one of these sort of powerful entities. Um, you know, nationalism, you can skewer in public. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, corporations, you can talk against all day mm-hmm. long and rail yeah. against all day long. But religion is one of those things I think that is has such power over people more than corporations, more than you know all these authoritarian, totalitarian ideologies that that even the people who are victimized by it and who are essentially pawns of of religious ideology, mm-hmm. uh, even they defend it. They defend yeah. it. Yeah, I think we've increasingly just become so accustomed to consuming. So much content, media all the time, right? So to actually sit down and have a conversation that's got nuance, to be able to say, I'm neither left or right or Republican or Democrat, or I'm neither completely atheist nor completely indoctrinated. I think as humans, we have so many shades in between. We're so complex. And I find that maybe we've always done this historically, but we reduce things to binaries, which is actually, I think, very unhelpful. Because mm-hmm. if you don't take the time to actually explore the nuance, like there's constant rhetoric about anti-capitalism and socialism is, you know, some are saying socialism is a way. And then you have capitalists saying, well, every time socialism's ever been tried, there's a hundred million bodies in the Soviet Union and, and, and other countries that prove it doesn't work. Well, okay, like I personally believe capitalism in and of itself, I don't think is the problem. 
I think capitalism is probably the best system we've ever had economically. The problem is not free market capitalism. The problem is that free market capitalism isn't actually in existence anywhere because between crony capitalism, between money in government and political lobbying and whatnot, the rules of the game are constantly being twisted in a way that is against the will of an otherwise free market. But like to have that conversation with someone yeah, I'm sorry. I just have to, in case some of these coughs make it through the I just have to say I, just, I can't tell if you're disagreeing with me or not. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm recovering from a cult. I'm not contagious, but just have so a the, bit of a So the cough, best yeah. thing about podcasts is when you listen to somebody cough, you can't catch whatever they have. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think when we reduce things to, you know, I hate the left-wing, right-wing construct or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, anything that reduces to a binary. If you actually take an issue and let's talk about it with nuance, let's explore it from all the different directions that we can and then figure out what makes the most sense, that would be a more productive conversation. That, that's I completely agree with you. It's about the issue. It's bizarre. It's bizarre for me to think that if I'm pro-choice and I have to have a certain view on the death penalty or mm-hmm. the environment, like sure. all yeah, of yeah. these things, they go together. They're equivocated. Yeah, yeah. Or on the environment, on or on fossil fuels, or you know that okay, people who are pro-choice will be anti-fossil fuels. People who are pro-life are going to be pro-fossil fuels. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like they're they're not related. And the fact that people stay consistent on these things are that's evidence of how tribalistic mm. this kind of thinking is. The other thing is, I, I remember in the eighties we used to have these conversations in college, like, well, you know, capitalism is better. No, socialism is better. Like, and it's just not like that anymore. I mean, you had this whole idea. People used to think that cop- capitalism takes advantage of the little man. Like, you know, the, the man gets – everybody gets taken advantage of. People get exploited because of capitalism. And then, you know, now you have one of the biggest corporations. I see people railing against corporatocracy on Facebook. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, the, the irony yeah. of that. But uh, so Facebook. What is Facebook? Facebook is one of you know it's a, one of the biggest corporations in the world. It essentially takes all of your information. It, if it was a country, it'd be the second largest country in the mm-hmm. world. Um, I don't even know if it's a, if it's a, if, if well, it's it'd a be first the largest, largest by now. Yeah, largest yeah. by now, like billions of people on it. Um, and it 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 takes that information and sells it to advertisers. Mm-hmm. You know. Not just your demographic info, but nope. stuff you like, you know, the bands yep. you like, what you were thinking yesterday. So they can sell you shit you don't need. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, well, I mean, the, 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 the target advertising is, I, I'm admitting this, it actually works. Like, I, mm-hmm. I actually get ads for things I like, yeah. which, which helps. But the point is that, you know, they're, they're railing against the corporatocracy, not realizing how Orwellian this whole thing is <laughs> <laughs> already. Yeah. Um, and... What is a corporation doing? It is giving the common man a voice. That is so strange. We never thought of that in in the eighties. When we used to talk about corporations and how evil corporations are, and you know, there's still a lot of problems with corporations, of course, like the whole idea of them. We just never thought that the that one of the most profitable business models for corporations now, uh, in the internet and social media age, would be to empower the common person's voice to bring out all voices uh freely i mean there are revolutions mubarak hosni mubarak in egypt who was uh, entrenched as a dictator there for 40 years mm-hmm. or more um I, I don't know if i'm getting the right but for decades yeah uh he was brought down uh, because of a revolution that was started on facebook by wa'al ghanim right so 
the the first like Tahrir Square protests right. were actually organized on on Facebook. Uh, there are images that we're seeing out of Gaza in in Palestine that I never saw growing up in the eighties because you know the, the, there'd be no way to share them. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's nowhere. On, yeah. To sh- but you, you're seeing them on YouTube. Yeah, uh, you're seeing um, the the voices of Iranians in the Iranian the Green Revolution in, in two thousand nine that happened on Twitter. Uh, the recent thing with my stealthy freedom, where all these women are, you know, burning their headscarves, and because they're forced to wear it there, it's compulsory in Iran. Uh, these things are even advertisers are getting in on the social, um, you know, the social justice messages. Dove soap has a whole bunch mm-hmm. of them challenging conventional ideas of beauty or or whatever. Um, you know, you've had that. What was that commercial where they brought two people in? Was it a Budweiser thing? No, Heineken. They brought two people in from very different experiences. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, someone who's very anti-trans, and then a trans person, and they they came in and they had a discussion, and they ended up getting along because they worked on a project together. Mm-hmm. So there are so many that that sort of line that we had that hard line between yeah exactly uh, corporations yeah. and the the power of the individual person. Is uh, that line is being blurred? I mean, mo- most of you can be a person in your basement, uh, like Mark Zuckerberg and like Julian Assange, and, mm-hmm. and you can bring governments to to their knees eventually, potentially. Right. I mean, that's that's the kind of world we're living in because of the the information age and because of the internet. Yeah, so yeah. I, everything is very different now. It's also the degree to which the means of production are abstracted from us as users, like like. Any one thing in this room right now, it could have sourced its parts from 50 different countries and then end up being manufactured in one country and assembled in another country. And then any of the different systems that we have in place, they have both positive and negative impacts. And I've had this, this is probably actually the first time I'm talking about this on the podcast, but I've had this theory for at least 15 years that I haven't shared nearly enough, I think. But I call it the theory of retrofitting the world. And what I mean by that is you can have an old building, an old house, and it could be on the verge of falling down. It could be massive polluter of the environment. It could have any number of problems, but it might be a beautiful piece of architecture from a period of history. And no one builds buildings just that way anymore. So you have a couple of options. You either continue to keep using it until it just falls apart you tear it down and you put up some other thing there or you appreciate what it is for the good and then retrofit the parts of it that don't work mm. you know and so you see this a lot with infill buildings in in Toronto for example right like they'll take it the historic facade and they'll, they might put up some condo or something that's somehow associated with it a lot of homes here they'll keep up three walls and then they'll build a new structure around it and it preserves some of the character, but now it might be a more green building or it might have better flow of space or it can house a bigger family or any number of things. And I think that we could do the same with some of the institutions in religion, for example. Like one thing religion has done beyond just story, it's inspired fear, but it's inspired awe. Like you go into some of the cathedrals or temples or mosques of the world and they're incredible works of architecture. Mm-hmm. There is probably no other force in history that has gotten us to a point where we would build something like that. I mean, albeit in many cases, it was built by essentially slaves. Well, uh, virtually all Virtually cases, all yeah. slaves. But now that it's been built, do we tear it down? Or do we sort of understand that moment in time it was, and then also understand what human ingenuity is capable of? And do we retrofit some of those things? Like if this was a place of community for people, 
is there something to be learned from there? If corporations do these incredible things to help empower people and get a voice out to the public and change the world, are there parts of the corporation or the way it's structured that can be improved? I don't think we need to burn the whole place down. That's exactly what I was trying to say. I, I just don't think that that... You know, you were talking about binaries. I mean, this whole idea, is it socialism or capitalism? Is it corporations or is it the people? It, these are these are also false binaries. I mean, mm. these are things that are – we're seeing them being merged in ways that, that we couldn't before. Another example I like to give, you know, we used to talk about charities. Right. And, you know, they're, they're poor, starving kids in Africa, uh, in sub-Saharan African countries, and, and we need to give them food and we have to give them money. Give them an iPhone, right? And it, I'll – and one of the reasons is that, you know, again, when I was growing up in the 90s, I was in a band, a musician, mm, you know, we're both. Yeah. And, and, you know, back then, I mean, we couldn't do what we're doing now. No. I mean, you, you had to save up. You had to really practice your song and yeah. make sure it was perfect. Rent expensive studio time. Go in, um, you know, make sure you nail your take right then. Because mm-hmm. it, was on, it was on those actual analog tape. Yeah, on the one-inch tape or whatever, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you had to make sure that you did. And once you got the tape, you know, you couldn't, the only way you could get somebody else to hear it is if you held your phone next to the, the speaker of the stereo and then you played the tape to them, mm-hmm. right? I, I, th- th- there was no MP3s. You couldn't send anybody songs. Um, you couldn't do anything. So you had to, if you were going to play shows, you had to play shows and you had to dub the tapes yeah. and reproduce them and and then pass them out or sell them at your shows. I mean, the, the whole thing was expensive and laborious and now uh you know if you uh, that uh, you know the 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 people who made recordings in million dollar studios that million dollar studios right i'm holding up my phone right now is right here in my hand like this is a this is a movie studio my phone is is a movie studio it is a publishing company it Mm -hmm. is a um uh, it is a recording studio. It's also a phone. Yeah, it's a songwriting tool. It's a <laughs> yeah. it's a phone as well. Yeah. It's my entire library yeah. is here. So, I what I can do is I can create. If I am a talented kid, who would have had to rely on all of these resources to get myself out there, right? This is also a distribution company, massive, yeah. right? So I would have to now. I have this thing. I can make broadcastable quality recordings, yeah. right? Movies. 4K, all of that. I can do it all on this phone. I can upload it, and I can get instant worldwide distribution. Yeah, easily. I mean, if that is so. You know, we talk about the income inequality gap, right? There's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, which is not exactly true. But we talk about that. But there is also what has narrowed is the um, uh, the uh, the opportunity inequality. Like it, it isn't the people who were who would have been disadvantaged at the time I was growing up now you know have the ability to do a lot of things mm-hmm. that only millionaires could have done you know back at that time right. um and th- there are a lot of people who made it big that way i mean Justin Bieber was in Stratford right just yep. a few hours north yep. of here and the guy made youtube videos and and he got picked up i mean there's loads of stories sure. uh, like yeah. that that are coming up uh where uh, people have just been empowered and Talent is coming out of all kinds of places. 
Yeah. It's almost that trajectory of progress in some way. I, I don't know. This is like this is like an optimistic version of Black Mirror. You know what we're talking sure, about? Sure, yeah, yeah. But I mean, if you think about it, though, I mean, what, everything you just talked about, first, I'm living it. Like the means for production and distribution and whatnot have been democratized to a point where almost everybody, and I mean, I, I still think that we're privileged to an extent to be able to even say that, yeah. but many more people are able to get something out there, create something that they couldn't have created before because they didn't have the tools. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you're talking about Justin Bieber, like coming out of Stratford off of YouTube videos. But when I was in, um, in, in Mumbai in 2015, and then again this year, I met a couple of these hip hop crews in Taravi, which is this area in Mumbai. It was the kind of the backdrop of Slumdog Millionaire. And it's, I hate using the yeah. term, but it's called Asia's largest slum. It's actually probably a half billion dollar um, <coughs> cottage industry neighborhood with very resilient people. But in that community, somehow over the last 10 years, hip hop through YouTube and then you know, through just some exchange from people coming and going, cousins and family and whatnot from America and the UK, hip hop kind of enters the lexicon in India. And it was sort of a very small fringe movement. And now it's just, it's exploded. Like the independent underground hip hop scene in India is massive. There's finally like yeah, validation Gully with Gully Boy, right? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of those guys that were in Gully Boy, I met them back in 2015 and ended up just through a crazy set of circumstances at two in the morning out in the middle of nowhere in this bungalow end up shooting a this freestyle cipher that broke out between three crews that went up on the hip hop India YouTube channel. I think it's something like a million views on that now. Wow. But when I talk to these guys who are like, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 at that time, I'm like, how did you guys even come across hip hop? Where's this coming from? Because they had internalized it. They had made it their own. When I was there, I felt like there's guys that look like Snoop, that look like Dre. You may as well have been in LA. There was no reason to believe that we're in India. (laughs) And these guys weren't rapping in English, but they were rapping in their vernacular, Malayalam or Tamil or Hindi or Gujarati or whatnot. But that's because YouTube exists, because MP3s exist, because there's more international travel and all these different things have coalesced. And now these guys who never had access to music instruments, no music in their family, many of them living very hard lives in a country that doesn't even know about this music, have taken it to a whole other level. I thought about that for a long time. I'm like, we live in an incredible time where that is possible. Yeah, we live in a time when I mean, growing up in Pakistan and in Saudi Arabia in the 80s, I was told that uh, you have to have a career that's going to give you some financial security. Mm-hmm. So as you know, with South Asians, what is it? Engineer, doctor, lawyer, maybe business. Uh, you go into arts only if you don't get the grades for anything else, and everybody assumes you're just a dumbass. Yeah, yeah. You know, and no, one will, no one will marry you. No one will marry yeah. you, all that. So those are the choices. But now, um, you know, you can be... Uh, if you have a passion for coin collecting, you can make a sustainable business out of that because you can get online and connect with people who do, you know, collect coins all over the world and have the same passion that you do. And you, you can cre- create a business out of it. If you like arts and crafts, you know, you can, you can do all of these things. Is online. this the moment where you realize your calling is, I, co- no, is coin collecting? I'm, I'm talking right now, right now. Like I, you know, I, I trained as an, as an oncologic pathologist, but the work that I do right now, which you know, yeah, I work in medical communications. I mean, this is stuff I didn't take a single class in college sure. for. Sure, yeah, yeah. The, the book that I wrote, all of the other public speaking stuff I do, I didn't take a single class for it in college. I mean, this is – what I'm doing right now is I was able 
to eventually monetize the stuff that I like and and I like doing. My my wife is a um, she's now she's she actually is one of the top like boudoir photographers in Canada, um, and uh, she did it purely because she had a passion for photography. That's she learned yeah. Photoshop. She had it knew it inside out by a very young age, and and uh, she didn't go to school for this either. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, so it's just. And, you know, we're living and we're being sustained on uh, incomes and uh, and we're living a lifestyle that's purely born out of monetizing what we're passionate about. It's mm-hmm. the exact opposite of what, you know, our parents told us growing up that you have to, these are the professions you have to go to, to yeah. for financial security. And I think that's immensely liberating. And when when we look at smartphone penetration in uh, in, in poorer countries... You know, a lot of these people, they don't have uh, the resource to have, you know, three square meals a day, but they have cell phones. Yeah, They all, they all have mobiles and cell phones and they have internet connections. And I I think that, that that's an amazing thing. And I, I think it's unprecedented. I mean, people say, well, you know, it's like the Gutenberg printing, printing press, but it's it's beyond that. It's beyond that, it's, yeah. It's beyond that. And I've I've seen, especially with the, you know, the, the secular movement in the Muslim community um, around the world, I mean, when we do this podcast, I mean, 30 years ago, Salman Rushdie had to go into hiding mm-hmm. because there was a fatwa and there was a bounty on his head because he wrote a book uh, that was uh, critical of, of Islam. Yeah, just a few years ago, you know, yeah, there were people being massacred for making cartoons. Now with the internet, there's entire communities of people like Salman Rushdie who've gotten together or holding conferences uh, publishing books, walking around freely, you know, doing podcasts, having conversations, and a lot of these, a lot of these, we've had them on as guests on our podcast. Right. These are, uh, you know, free thinkers uh, in uh, LGBT kids in Saudi Arabia, right? Women who have escaped Saudi Arabia because their parents were threatening to kill them, um, near victims of honor killings, uh, people in Pakistan, people in Egypt, people in Malaysia, Indonesia. I mean, these are people who are able to speak out. They have voices now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's an amazing thing. There's an, you know, the the reason that we are here in the Western world and we're enjoying the freedoms and the and the liberties and the civil rights and the sort of the the intellectual. Um, achievements, everything else, yeah. and technological achievements that we have here is because of the Enlightenment era um, that that happened after the Reformation, mm-hmm. um, and and the, they called it the European Enlightenment. And a lot of that happened because uh, there were free thinkers who challenged the religious orthodoxy. You know, Christian Europe was is associated with the Dark Ages. I mean, right. they what they did to non-believers and and to um, you know, Jewish people and every, like it, it makes ISIS look like kindergartners. Right. Right. Hundreds of years ago in, in Christian Europe. So those were the dark ages after that came out the enlightenment where you had these ideas of freedom and liberty and, and modern societies were formed on the basis of that. The same thing is happening now in the Muslim world that was associated with the printing press and the printing press mm-hmm. was a way of disseminating knowledge right, in a very fast way. And this is also around the time that, the Reformation had happened and the Bible had been opened up and become transparent to all people. It wasn't just the, up to the authority of the Catholic Church to interpret it and you know, had the Protestant Reformation, all that. You had all of that stuff happening. That was facilitated by the printing press. And now you have the internet 
that is doing the same right. thing in the Muslim world. And, you know, you have Muslim youth that, that they're coming, they're having their own enlightenment. And that's what we cover all the time on our on our podcast. It's, it's phenomenal the kinds of uh, changes that are right. happening right now that you don't really see addressed in, uh, I guess, mainstream news. It feels like because you got to, at least in the mainstream, because time is limited and you got to fit in a couple of points between between ads. You that's why, kind of that's pick, why podcasts are the future. Well, yeah. So you, you, you have to pick a horse and you just have to run with it for five minutes or 15 seconds or whatever it is, right? Like there, there isn't enough time to explore all this, but I constantly find interesting and I don't know what to make of it personally, but all of these, all this progress that we make, it's got both a positive and a negative to it. There's a residue to everything. The amount of cobalt or lithium used by our phones, right? And the footprint that that leaves on the planet or the fact that at the same time that we are seeing a proliferation of smartphones in a country like India, the ruling party managed to spin up 16,000 WhatsApp groups and used it to spread its propaganda at the same time to millions and millions of people in the second largest country in the world. So it's like any idea, any tool or technology, any piece of progress, whether it's the civil aviation really kind of came on the backs of military aviation. If you look at the internet, that also came out of the military. If you look at many of our scientific advances, our space programs, NASA. GPS. uh, Well, GPS. Basically, everything has had either destruction as its sole original use case or at some point, something that didn't have destruction at its core has been co-opted by that. But it's almost like that tension or rivalry, needs... like that rivalry with the Soviet Union. Sure, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. But it's as if we need that tension. Like it's almost that cheetah and that gazelle that you were talking about, right? Like yeah. it's as if without that tension, things just stand. They don't move, right? Yeah. And so I don't know personally what to make of it. I think that we could be doing a better job making the world better and net positive and suck less for so many people. But maybe there's some level of this that's just inherent in the way that we operate. I don't know. Well, I mean, the, the overall, the world is getting better. Because, I mean, we've all watched Game of Thrones. I mean, I know it's a fantasy series, mm-hmm. but it's really based on the way that a lot of people lived. A lot of the values that are shown in the show, the beheadings and the wars and the, the and everything that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was what a lot of our history was like. Mm-hmm. That's what our ancestors were all up to. You know, the... The, the world, it is better. I mean, we've had uh, on our podcast, we had Steven Pinker. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I heard yeah. that episode. Yeah. Yeah. We had, uh, we had Steven Pinker and he, he has written a book about this. He's written a couple of books about it and he wrote the dark, the, the better angels of our uh, nature. And he wrote enlightenment now. And both of these actually talk about how we keep on saying that, oh, this is not a good world to bring a child into nowadays and everything. And that's all, it's all bullshit. If you look at that, we are living in the best time that we possibly can right now. I mean, you and I, um, if we lived like 50, 60 years ago, things would be very different, especially mm-hmm. if you're, if you're a minority right, uh, of any kind, especially if you're black, yeah, right. Or if you're Jewish or, or if you're a woman, I mean, these, these were not good times for people. Um, Violence was, uh, you know, violence was rampant at the time. You know, lynchings were borderline legal. Okay, uh, and that's just here mm-hmm. in in North America, in the United States, around the world, things were just 
a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Things are horrendous. Uh, now, now it's very different. We see things more, so we're more used to it. It's to um, bring an oncology an oncology analogy to it. It's like cervical cancer. Once the Pap smear was invented, right? Um, cervical cancer was being diagnosed much earlier. Mm-hmm. Right? So the rates of cervical cancer started skyrocketing because you were suddenly picking up a lot more cases. But the rates of death from cervical cam- cancer took were nosedived because <laughs> you were catching it early. That's mm-hmm. why you had so many more right. cases and you were treating it early. So, you know, th- th- that's kind of another example, a real-life example is uh, police brutality against unarmed black men. Uh, this is something, the Rodney King incident. I mean, we mm-hmm. both remember that in the yep. early 90s. Led to the LA riots. Someone happened to be out there with this clunky sort of VHS camera or whatever. And then they ended up filming it by accident. It went on the news and everyone, uh, you know, freaked out. Yeah. Now, does that mean that it wasn't happening then? No, it was probably happening way more than yeah, it happens yeah. now. It's just that someone caught it on tape. And suddenly, you know, all the black people said, we've been telling you this stuff has mm-hmm. been happening. Now you're seeing evidence of it. And then people may have said that's just one case. The thing is, now it's most likely happening a lot less than it did before the Rodney King incident. We're just seeing a lot more of it because Mm -hmm. everyone has a cell phone. Uh, Cops are very conscious about it. Um, They know they can be filmed at any time. So there is a sort of public accountability. It's incredible, though, that even when they have every reason to believe that they could be filmed they still behave that way, which begs a question. When there are no cameras or when there were no cameras, what would they have been doing? That's the like, thing. There was, it was a lot worse. I mean, I, I, it's, there's no reason to believe that it was, any, that, that it was better in any way. Yeah. I, was, so, absolutely. When people aren't being seen, they know they can't be caught. And it, it is different. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there is more racial awareness a lot of the young cops i mean there there's a lot of i know i know a lot of police officers i mean they're amazing people they're very conscientious and and the, these are people that are aware of um you know they're they're raised differently than than people were before i mean they're more mm-hmm. conscious of things uh, when i was growing up as a, as a kid when i was in school homophobia was accepted yeah. we all use homophobic language yeah. you know we we all called each other that all the time uh, when we were in fifth and sixth grade, because you know we grew up in the eighties, I made a conscious choice to stop doing that at some point in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was just one of those things. I, I grew up seeing it being equivalent to incest for a vast majority of people. That's how they thought of homosexuality. To you know, same-sex marriage being legal everywhere, yeah, and gay friends and gay people in my extended family. And it, it's 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 a the change happens very very fast. So th- there are those people who are more aware, but um, I-, I think that there's an illusion that it's happening a lot more because we just see it a lot more online. Yeah, I also think by the measures that Steven Pinker writes about, by those measures, and objectively could definitely make a, a strong argument, the world is better, more peaceful, and more cooperative than it's ever been. Definitely much more so than the early part of you know the last century. But if you're that young black family in Phoenix who had four cops pull up and threaten to kill you in front of your two-year-old or whatever, 
Or if you're a woman from Louisiana, uh, Lisa Fitzpatrick, who was on the last episode, she's actually adopted a, a number of foster children. One of them is this is a 19 year old. Uh, she's white, but her son is a 19 year old black man for something extremely trivial with no evidence. Got arrested, thrown in jail. He's being traded in the correctional system within New Orleans. She hasn't seen him in months, and she basically talked about her first-hand experience as a white woman with a black son seeing firsthand the way the prison industrial complex works. Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> depending on who you are reading that study or the, that compilation of statistics on the world being better, how likely you are to actually feel that that's believable or not, it's going to depend on your immediate life experience or the people around you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, and it's very different for individuals. I mean, the, the difference is, I mean, of course, there is. This is not to say that there isn't injustice anywhere in the world right now. I mean, we've got, yeah. At one point, you know, you had a world war happening, and you had like millions of people being thrown in gas chambers mm -hmm. and, and and being uh, experimented on, human experiments. You had that. Um, today, uh, you don't have that kind of thing happening on a mass scale, but you do have the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Yep. You have a horrific situation happening in, in Yemen with that war that is backed by the U.S. I mean, with Obama and Trump and the mm -hmm. world helps support it, you know, supported the Saudis. You've, you've had this thing happening in Syria. You have hot spots and you have troubles, uh, troubled spots in the world. Some of them get ignored, like in the Congo and Sudan mm -hmm. and everything. Yeah. Um, still, so, so there are problems in the world. There is a lot of injustice, but the, but you do get, and people who go through that now, um, there is a furor over it. There, there is a awareness about it. It does show up, even if it's a Twitter hashtag, or if there's an appearance on a podcast. You get to talk to people mm -hmm. about it. You get people to, people hear about it, and they sympathize with you. They don't just ignore you, right. or they don't. Worse, like the way that it used to be, is they don't agree with the people who meted out that injustice to you. Mm -hmm. Right, right, and, yeah, and yeah. you're not left left hanging. And so, on a lot of levels, you know, it it is better. That does not, by any means, mean that we don't have a whole slew of new problems that we have to deal with, or that even the older problems that, that there aren't people who are having horrific lives right now and who are going through absolute horror. When you think about all this, and now that you're a dad. Has that changed anything for you? Has that changed your perspectives on anything? Has it like how has that impacted you? It's changed the the way that I feel about things. It's it's a, this is a hard question because I, I I all of the things that I think about right that that I think about right now are things that I thought before my daughter was born. Mm -hmm. It's just now with her here, I feel it a lot more. Like when I saw that picture recently of that the father and with the, his daughter and, in the with river. his daughter yeah. in the river, I, I mean that is something I would see and I'd feel horrified and and disgusted by before I had my daughter, but now when I see it, it you know it makes it, it moves me to tears. I feel it a lot yeah, more intensely. I, I can empathize with it a lot more, and uh, so I. It, it it makes me uh, I I'm able to put myself 
in the positions of people and and feel that a little bit more intensely i i remember before i had my daughter there was that story of the guy whose four-year-old kid fell into uh, a lake with a crocodile yeah yeah and then he dove into and he fought a crocodile he fought a crocodile to save his kid and i used to i thought of that and at that point remember my wife was pregnant we were about to have our daughter and i th- i and i was a little scared of fatherhood i didn't become a father until i was in you know until i was 41 so right. for the longest time i wasn't necessarily big on having kids but so i thought i was like wow so this is right now without a child there's no way in hell i'd ever jump into a lake to fight a crocodile being a father is going to make me more likely to jump into lakes and fight crocodiles, crocodiles yeah and like that terrifies me that sucks uh but it's true i mean that's that's how it is i i do feel things it's it's the way that i relate to events i i don't think differently about things um i just think uh, i just feel it's the way that i think uh, the, the the way that i connect to them and the way that i feel it i know you have a brother do you have any sisters yeah no? yeah, yeah? I have uh, one sister and I have two brothers. Do you, I mean, this might be a silly question, but do you think your, how is having a daughter in your mind, has that changed anything more in terms of certain issues that you think about versus if you had a son? Like, would you be more acutely aware of something now because you have a daughter than if you had a son? Well, I mean, the the thing that I think about most now is um, everything with the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm happy to see it happen because I, I, I think that that will be we are at a point now where if my daughter does go through anything like that, and I, unfortunately, I think that all of our daughters will eventually experience situations like that at some mm-hmm. point. Um, and she comes out and and speaks about it. Uh, I think that there will be, um, I I don't think it's going to be as bad as it was for you know, the previous generations of women sure, yeah. who had to stay quiet and just kind of suck it all up. I mean, she's going to be listened to. Um, and there will be people who will take her accusation seriously, right? If if anything like that ever comes up. And I, I like that. So I um, I think that's something that is different previously, as, as opposed to how would it be different with a son? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a son. I have nephews. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worry about them sometimes. I think that there is, I mean, little boys have their own challenges. You know, yeah. there's a, it is a changing world. Uh, there are a lot of questions that they're asking. There's, there are a lot of culture wars that are happening, especially with gender and, yeah. and, and sex, boys, girls, women, men. Um, there are a lot of conflicts. It's easy to get caught up in that. It's nowadays, especially, it's really easy to make a mistake and, and be destroyed for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about defending rapists or people like they absolutely deserve whatever's coming to them. But um, there are, you know, many things like boys are not doing as well in school. They're no. not. They're not placing as well professionally. Uh, they're not. Um, there are a lot of problems that are happening with boys as well. So there, there is a different set of challenges. I think there was some version of that that has happened throughout history. It's been difficult, um, but yeah, it is. It is a different. I don't know how I would have answered that question before, but now having both a son and daughter, there are little things that perhaps wouldn't have noticed just having either just a son or a daughter. But 
I think it was junior kindergarten. Um, it was right around the time when I was writing that spoken word piece, Baby Girl. And my daughter was like, why, Daddy, why are we making this video? Why are you writing piece. this thing? Thank it. you. It Thank was you. a great piece and it was a great video. I remember that. Thank you. Daddy, why, are we, why do we keep doing this? Why did you write this? And I said, because someday somebody's going to tell you that you can't do something because you're a girl. Yeah. Literally two weeks later, I pick her up from school and she's just fresh out of school. She's going to dump everything that happened in her day. And then I did this and then that. And I was playing with, you know, my friend. And then we went and we started to play with Transformers. And then these two boys said that you can't play with that. Girls don't play with Transformers. And she just kind of kept going. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, back up. What did these boys say to you? They said, you can't, girls can't play with Transformers. And it was Transformers or superheroes, something like that. I think it was actually superheroes, sorry. Like, girls can't play with superheroes. Girls can't be superheroes. Okay, so what did you tell these boys? And she's like, well, we just told them that girls can do anything. And I'm like, look, see, I told you someday somebody's going to tell you there's something you can't do because you're a girl. I didn't know that was going to come in two weeks. And I kind of trivialized it at that point, didn't make much of it. But I thought about it after. I'm like, there's two things here. One, my daughter at five or six is already now having to think about herself as a girl being able to do something or not doing something. Mm. And boys her age already have either from the schoolyard or home something has already started to condition their minds to think that there are things that girls can't do and in general when guys don't do something it's not because they can't do it it's because they choose not to so if a guy doesn't become a nurse it's because he chooses not to become a nurse if a guy doesn't be a stay-at-home dad it's because he chooses not to do that but if a girl doesn't do something, it's because she can't. Mm. And in some cases, it's very much because she's forbidden from doing it, whether it's playing in the NBA or holding a certain post in a, in a religious institution or whatnot, or because the societal norms force her not to do it. And there's been a, f- a bunch of other situations that have happened like that, very little things, like typical kid stuff. But I thought these dynamics are already playing out. And so then when I see my son, who's four and a half now, Every now and then he'll say things like, you know, girls can't do this stuff. You're not getting that from us because for sure we make it very clear at home that girls and boys do everything. But he's kind of getting some of these social cues when he's in school or he's seeing it elsewhere. And he doesn't mean it in any malicious way, but he doesn't see a superhero being a girl or a basketball player being a girl or whatever. And so, and this is for me that's really aware of these things. I can imagine for a lot of parents who are either not aware of this stuff or perhaps not tuned in or perhaps don't have the luxury of time that I have right now, they might not notice this stuff, but these things are still playing out now. And so I I kind of realized I need to be that much more in my, you know, my wife and I were very conscientious about this stuff. The moment he says, Didi, you can't do that because girls don't do that. We find some productive way to get in front of that. But we also constantly wrestling with, I have to give this message to my daughter that she can do anything she wants. She can be whatever she wants. And at the same time, reinforce the same message for my son but prepare my daughter for a world that will probably at least create some friction for her that's different than, you know, the friction my son will face. And they both hear each other's messages at the same time. So it's like, how do you, especially at their age, like how do you sort of disassociate those messages and contextualize them? It's fun, it's complicated, it's tricky. I'm very fortunate, I think, between my wife and I and her being just really amazing about all of this stuff too. So when we talk about these things and we talk through and we're a team about this, 
but there's a lot of kids that just, they don't have that. Right. And so yeah. you, you kind of, you model the behavior around you. You see a, a drunk uncle, you see a, a deadbeat brother or whatever it is. No one tells you what's right most, or wrong or even kids, challenges. Most kids don't have that. And I, and I, I was actually going to ask you that because, you know, you have both a daughter and a son. So I was going to ask you what the, uh, what the difference is. You, you kind of answered it pretty well. I, I'm just thinking of one thing. I think that there's certain things that are so deep rooted in the way that we live mm-hmm. and the way that our, our culture is, you know, even here in the West that we may not pick up on it no matter how conscious we're sure. being. Yeah. Like, you know, for instance, uh, you, I, I want to tell my daughter that, you know, you can do anything at all, but she watched, I mean, she was, she's very little right now, but she saw us watch the world cup, the soccer world cup and go everywhere and not mm-hmm. miss out on any game. And we, you know, bet money on it. Yeah. Now there is a soccer world cup that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. It's a women's soccer world cup. Yeah. Right. And, and nobody really watches it. So, I mean, she's going to, there, even that, I mean, I'm sure, just thinking yeah. of one little example yep. is going to have an effect that, you know, we watch soccer, like you can be anything, you know, a woman can be an athlete, just like a man can be an athlete. You can be a soccer player, basketball player, whatever. But in this household, yeah, we were all going gaga and going crazy when the World Cup for soccer happened for men. But for the women one, we're just kind of, we, we don't even know what's happening. And and that itself, the kids tend to learn by example a lot more. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, of course, you can yeah, tell yeah. a kid not to lie uh, all your life, all day. You can say, "Don't lie, don't lie, don't lie." But then, if they see you on the beach chilling and calling into work, saying, oh, "I'm sick, I can't come in," they're going to lie. They're going to learn how to lie. Yeah. Right. So it's a, it's the same kind of thing, you know. If we and and there's only so much we can do, right? We are constrained by the milieu that. Yeah, it surrounds us. I mean, there's only so much you can do. It's yeah, I had a, a similar thing just happen actually because through the the semifinals and the finals, not every game, but kids caught a little bit of it, and they were definitely like everyone was excited in the city. We were excited. They for really the, want to know what's going on. Yeah, 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 for, yeah. For, for, for the Raptors, my daughter was really excited about it. I don't know what led to it, but at one point she she was excited. She was playing basketball at school and whatnot. But she's like, but you know, I can never be a basketball player. I mean, I didn't go into the whole conversation about, well, there is a WNBA. And if I go into that conversation, then I don't know completely how to explain it. And I just, I kind of like, I just, I I felt bad. I didn't know that's a conversation that I'm not going to have to have with my son about his own life. So far right now, I don't think he's got the the genetic pedigree to to end up in the NBA, but who knows, right? But I would not have to have the conversation that, you would never be a basketball player because you're a boy. And yeah, so that, that's a, the thing. And it's like, how do you, how do you tackle something? And then, then how far do you go? Like, okay, yeah. well, no, there is this thing called the WNBA. It's like, oh, really? Well, where, did, where is it? But they just had their uh, playoffs at this time or you know, a little while ago. Well, we didn't see that. We're watching this one with all the guys. Yeah, crazy, yeah. And we're loving it, including all the women. They're loving it, too. Yeah, so why exactly, weren't we yeah. loving it as much when the when the women played? Yeah. Are they less exciting the games? Are the rules different? No, no, they're they're all really good. They're, yeah. It's all the same. It's fun to watch. Yeah, but then why didn't we watch it? Yeah, it's so it's just it, it is tough to to tackle these issues mm-hmm. and you can be very conscious and I think I think you're amazing at this stuff. I think you're very conscious of it. I could tell when you, when I saw the video that you made about your daughter, but um 
you know, it, no matter how conscious you are about this stuff, there are just certain things that are entrenched in the society or just in the, in yeah. the world in general that, that, uh, you can, that are still hurdles. Yeah. And I, I think, and, and change, I mean, change happens fast, but it also happens slowly too. Yeah. In some ways. So speaking of sports, the clown car, well, I'm, I'm going to taint the conversation. The clown car that is the current Democratic primary. Yeah. You, in 2016, you seem to call the progression of that election pretty uh, accurately. I know our... Uh, oh, our at mutual, at the, only at the primary level. I think it ended up turning into uh, our mutual friend Spitz, you yeah. know, having to buy you dinner and everything in it the did, end. yeah. So here we are. I, uh, I didn't get a chance to watch the debates. I've peripherally kind of heard a little bit about what happened. Where do you see things going? I don't know. I actually genuinely don't know. I like make, making predictions, and this is weird uh, paranoia right now that because Trump was like a nine eleven level <laughs> event for so many Democrats and liberals. It was, just don't make any predictions. Don't make any. What if we're wrong again? What if we're wrong again? So they just all just want to go with the assumption that Trump's going to get reelected, um, unless proven otherwise. Just because they're the trauma of being wrong was just way too much for them. Mm-hmm. And the trauma of what happened in the election was way too much for them. So, but there's we should make predictions. It's fun, you know. It's a, it's a well, we're privileged living up here in Canada and watching that as like the the clown car, as you said. Yeah. But um, I th- I think we can make. I I think most recently, when Kamala Harris announced that she was running, uh, I was very happy about that. I'd mm-hmm. seen her. In some of the committee hearings, like the one with Brett Kavanaugh, oh yeah, she was yeah, really, yeah. she's I, intense. I could, yeah. yeah, I was looking at her, and I was like, she's brilliant. Yeah, very articulate, and she is. She doesn't pull any punches, so yeah. I could imagine her going up against Trump in a debate. And then she came out on the campaign trail, and it seems now, in retrospect, that it was a phase where I felt like she was pandering. I mean, she talked about how she listened to Snoop Dogg in college when Snoop Dogg's debut hadn't even come out when she was in college. <laughs> Uh, and it was just, uh, I, I felt like this is inauthentic and right. I, it felt a lot like Hillary again, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, Hillary Clinton just came across as inauthentic when she tried to connect with people, it felt forced. So I was getting the, that kind of vibe from her. And, uh, then in the second, in this, in this debate, the, the second debate of the, I've got so many candidates that had it over two nights, um, I saw her, and I, I I think that, and I saw some follow up interviews that she did. I think the best one that she did was with Morning Joe, mm-hmm. uh, the TV show on okay. MS, MSNBC, yeah. and um, I am liking her again. I really like her. I went through the beginning. I thought I actually liked the idea of Biden coming back um, because I I I've always liked Joe Biden. I know he's really old, uh, like Bernie, um, but he has had. Uh, I was liked his personal story. I think that it was a very good contra- contrast with Trump. I mean, even though they're both old white men, mm-hmm. but Biden has this, you know, he was 29 years or 30 years old when he got elected to the Senate. His wife and his daughter both died in, in a car crash. His, both of his sons were very badly injured. Then uh, he lost his, uh, he raised his sons as, as mm-hmm. a single father for quite a while. And then he, you know, he, and he, he comes from one of the Rust Belt states and that's right. what, uh, Trump won because of because you know Hillary didn't bother to campaign over there, 
and um, people really, really like him there. So I think that 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 really was the only that was a slim sliver of uh, the people that lost Hillary Clinton the election, and I think that he had more than enough to overcome that. Um, when the election happened in 2016, I think the uh, liberals were very complacent. And they thought we'd elected a, a black president twice yep. uh, by a wide margin. The world has been changed. Everything is different. America is different. There's no way in hell this guy, Trump, is ever going to get elected. Hillary's a shoe in We don't really love her. She's kind of a boring candidate. So we're just going to sleep in. We're not going to go out and, you know, whatever. She's going to win anyway. And they were asleep. And uh, this, again, you know, this mm-hmm. whole thing happened and Trump won. And that's when they realized, well, oh, okay. So the Obama thing wasn't a transformation for our country. It was just a fragile first step towards yeah. a change. And it was still vulnerable. And uh, we made two steps forward, but now we're one step back. And now there's a fire under their asses. And yep. it's a very different situation than it was in in 2016. Um, and remember in 2016, Hillary got 3 million more votes and Trump won only by around 80,000, 80,000 uh, votes in the Electoral College in the in the Rust Belt states. So I think that um, just that increased enthusiasm, I'm optimistic that things are going to change. I think most people think that that uh, it's going to be hard for him to win this again. But I like, that said, I think the paranoia that people have that, oh, what if he wins again? What if he wins again? I think that's healthy because it mm-hmm. keeps them on their toes. Yeah. So we have an aquarium upstairs and every now and then just kind of scrub the the glass a little bit when there's algae and pretend it's clean. But then every now and then I actually have to clean the gravel. And when you start stirring it up, all this gunk and just filth just starts floating around. Yeah. And I think that was the eight years of uh, Obama, (laughs) not even just the eight years of Obama. That's, that's been decades. So things kind of settle in. You've got a black president. All of a sudden, everything seems great. But that filth has been lurking there. It's probably even been growing for a long time. Trump is basically that thing that's going in and stirring up all the muck, right? And now, you know, out of that's emerged like 20 candidates. And I haven't followed that closely, but what I find hilarious, actually, these are all supposedly people representing the same party, but they have very different, almost micro talking points and agendas. You've got Tulsi Gabbard, who I, I like a lot, but she's, you know, almost singular message around we have to stop these regime change wars. Yeah. You got Andrew Yang with the Freedom Dividend universal, and Universal Basic, basic income. income. His platform is actually quite robust. It's a lo- it's got a lot more to it than just that. But that's I almost like a singular I talking like point. Biden's just the 46 years in government. He's the sort of run-of-the-mill establishment candidate. Like everyone's kind of got their own shtick. But this is not just sort of my personal knock on the Democrats or you know any particular party, but it's just that it seems politics has gone in the direction of let's do whatever it takes to win, not let's do whatever it takes to lead. So which agenda, which version of this party's trying to figure out who's got the best chances to win in the general election? And if it turns out to be a candidate who says everyone should get free pancakes on Saturdays and that becomes the most popular person, that is the candidate that will end up moving forward. And I feel like this idea that we need to think about how we best lead any country or group of people has almost fallen to the back. How do we just win and get keep power, get back into power? And I think something is lost along the way in that. And that's yeah. what the Republicans did and I they think- got Trump in there. 
Yeah, I think that there is a and recently it has gone that way. With the Trump issue, um I actually am kind of I've the threshold has lowered for me as well because I think that Trump is uh an international crisis. I think oh, Trump for is sure, a, yeah. is immensely toxic not only to the US but to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And um so my threshold for, you know, who's got I am okay with uh, anyone who comes up who's just not him. <laughs> I would be if it were Mitt Romney versus Trump right now. I'd be going for Mitt Romney. It's it's, it's that kind of situation. Um, so I like. I I think that it's good for the Democrats to have such. There, there's a variety of different ideologies there. There was a time when Biden was essentially all the candidates were like Biden with minor differences. Mm-hmm. But I think that Bernie Sanders has transformed the party. He's transformed the party to a point where even he can't, he can't, you know, he can't control it anymore. Like in, in when he was running against Hillary, moved the party, you know, further left. Mm-hmm. He he changed the Democratic Party con- completely. Now there are a lot of candidates who are going for his thing. Everybody's talking about Medicare for all. All, all all of these policies that he talked about yeah. now the party overall has to adopt because you know AOC is huge mm-hmm. now and she is that but so so when he comes across when he comes out and he says the same ideas that he he's the one who introduced them yeah into the party it doesn't play like it did in 2016 where it was new and it was different and it was radical now it just plays as okay everybody's saying this and you're you're the old guy so pass on the torch so Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren is kind of the one who's uh, taking that charge now, and I, I like that there's a little bit of ideological diversity. You know, you right, people yeah. like Tulsi Gabbard. You've got yeah. people like, you know, the establishment candidates like Joe Biden. And you've got a Pete Buttigieg. You've got uh, Elizabeth Warren, um, and uh, you know, you've got and you've got Andrew Yang. You have all of these people who are. Uh, there's a lot of ideological diversity, mm-hmm. and I like seeing. I wish there was more of that within. Parties. I mean, when you have a sure. two-party yeah, system, yeah. which kind of sucks. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you have some sort of inter-party diversity and a battling out of ideas, I think that's healthy mm-hmm. overall, uh, especially when they go up against Trump. Yeah, you know, and, and you're right to call him an international crisis. So my my son and daughter are in the same school, and um, we've gotten to know the vice principal there. And I don't know how it came up in conversation, but she said in 2016, right around and for a few months after the election – the level of anxiety among students was definitely elevated. So like we're talking about, you know, the kids that are like grade four, five, six. So, you know, basically grade fours and above, there was a lot of kids that were concerned because there's so much U.S. media spill over here and the idea of national borders, which is another just idea. It's just an imaginary idea that there's this line between these two places. But so kids couldn't distinguish the fact that we live in Canada and that's America and this media that's constantly playing, like you know, they're they're you know waiting for a subway. They see it there. They they're at home. Parents are watching the news. They see Trump there, and he's talking about we're going to hostile things he was doing towards minorities and all of this noise. So kids were feeling anxious, like, are we going to get kicked out of the country? Like, what's going to happen? And especially the younger ones, where they can't understand that these are two separate countries, and Trump has no business here. It created enough anxiety amongst the populace here. He sanctioned batshit crazy basically brexit picked up a lot of momentum you've got far-right leaders that have been voted in in brazil 
you've seen, I mean, I would argue it's essentially well, all far over right. Europe. I mean, uh, yeah. in, in Austria, they almost that the party founded by Nazis got about 46% of the vote. I mean, they, they didn't win, mm-hmm. but last year they came pretty close. So th- there yeah. is, there is a rise of this stuff, the far right authoritarianism. Um, and yeah, I remember I spoke to Steven Pinker about this and, you know, he had uh, one of the things I was curious about. I was like, "Is this a uh, a movement, or is it a backlash?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they can feel very similar. You know, is it a the world is becoming more globalized? There is more race mixing. There's more. Um, there is more sort of ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, ideological diversity. It's happening globally everywhere. And uh, everyone's more interconnected. They're exposed to each other's ideas. So the people who've traditionally held the power, which would be in the West would be generally white men. Mm-hmm. In in the part of the world I come from, it would be the Islamic supremacists, like the people, yeah. who, the religious authorities, the theocratic Islamic supremacy. So he pointed out that there is a, uh, he, call, he calls it theoconservatives. He, he, he says that there is a parallel there that the jihadists it's not that there are more jihadists now mm-hmm. there are more people muslims are becoming more and more moderate they are becoming more secular sure it's just that the loudest voices the jihadists have just become louder because there is a world that they're seeing that's slipping away from them yeah there was yeah. a world that they had control of people used to think that way and it's slipping away and when something is dying it screams the loudest Mm. Like when you're in the throes True, of death, yeah, yeah. you're going to be, you're going to organize more. You're going to find other people like you. You're going to scream the loudest. You're going to try to hold on to whatever's slipping away as strongly as you possibly can, so it doesn't go away. Um, similar kind of thing, you know, happening here. That generally these sort of really really old, uh, generally white people, uh, who and and conservatives, they're seeing this and they're like, you know, what's happening? We had a president whose middle name was Hussein. Yeah. And we, we could, we have a major presidential candidate now who's a woman whose middle name is Devi. You know, yeah. Kamala Harris. Yeah. She's, like, she's Indian. Like, what is going on? This is not America. This, this yeah. guy couldn't have been born here. Birtherism, right? Couldn't have been born. He's just, he couldn't have been. Yeah. Right? He, there's a, it's a changing world. There's nothing they can do about it. And it's well, changing, yeah. and they I, want to I hold on to it. There's two parts: is losing grasp of power, but it's also identity. I mean, basically every populist, every far right movement, whether it's old white men, whether it's old Islamic theocrats, whether it's the Hindutva movement in in India, oh, yeah. which That's is a, a modern one. political movement, is is really a bastardization. It has no religious pretext. It's just an entirely a political movement, and it's basically the militant arm the RSS and then its political faction has now become the ruling party but it's all about the identity of the majority that is being challenged and it comes back to that old quote of to the privileged that even equality will feel like oppression yeah and I think it, it kind of ties in hand in hand I think Pinker is right you're right to say that in your last throws is when you're going to be the loudest yeah but it's your your identity was never challenged and now it's challenged and uh, it's almost rearing its ugly head by in its last throws, just kind of clamping down on everything. Yeah, it is. I think. And uh, and so what happens is that usually when you have backlashes like this, you know, you're, 
this is not a sign that the world is getting worse. It is a symptom that mm. there is – the world is getting – moving to a different place, becoming more progressive. It's getting better. And these are the side effects. This is going to happen. It's actually shedding its old skin. And when the old skin sheds, there's a little bit of pain and there's going to be a little bit of a mess and some yeah. shit's going to happen. Now, backlashes can be deadly and they can be very damaging. I mean, if you look at World War II, Hitler, mm -hmm. that was a backlash to a certain world order. The world was moving in a certain place. There were people who didn't like it and it did immense damage. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of horror that happened as a result. I mean, it was only... How long was it? Like 12 years, 13, 20 years max, like mm -hmm. the whole process? If we count it really from its roots to depending sure, yeah, on who yeah. you are. That's a, just a tiny sliver of time in history. Um, but it was a backlash. It wasn't a movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you're in it, it's hard to tell the difference. Right. You can't tell. I think had nature been allowed to play itself out, I believe Bernie would have taken the nomination he would have beat Trump. That didn't happen. I think in lieu of that, Trump happening, in some ways it could be thought of as a better case scenario than Clinton winning, only because I think she would have kept the, the muck that's in the gravel of my aquarium would have been suppressed, but just more would have built up. I don't know that much more would have happened, but what's happened is Trump's gone in like a bull in a china shop. He's just wrecking shit everywhere, and now people thought – that you know, we had these cozy institutions and everything would run more or less the same. And he's proven that not to be the case. And as a result, you've seen all of these people either you know move further in the other direction, emerge with I think a greater level of consciousness, be more engaged and whatnot. And if anything, he might actually be speeding up the demise of that way of thinking. So I, I actually think that whether it was Bernie or Hillary, I, I do think that there was a wake-up call needed. I think that it was inevitable. Um, even if Bernie had won, it would have come at some point. Sure, yeah. Right? Uh, and I think it's... I, I'm, I'm... It's hard to say this, but I'm kind of glad it happened. I had frustrations with... And I'm as liberal and leftist as it gets. There was frustration. I had like a lot of things that I wrote about in my book where, where I used the term regressive left, which was coined by Majin Nawaz, um, about liberals who adopt illiberal principles, right? Mm. Such as, you know, like I told you, um, sorry, I'm getting more and more congested. Uh, the, like, you know, Pat Robertson says something homophobic, misogynistic. Everybody go goes after him like a, you know, with a ton of bricks. Right. So if, if, if a Muslim person says it, oh, no, we got to back off. We yeah. don't want to be Islamophobic. Yeah, right? yeah. So things like that. I, I, that. That kind of thing always frustrated me. And I felt like liberals had a blind spot when it came to that. And they um, were in denial about not just that, but a lot of other issues that are coming up. The, the identity politics. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, there are people in the manufacturing industry in the Rust Belt states who've lost their jobs. There's an opioid crisis there. Depression mm -hmm. rates are skyrocketing. Yeah. Suicide rates among sort of these middle, lower middle class whites skyrocketed. And then they're watching TV and they see a guy who looks like me at Harvard talking about how I'm oppressed and mm -hmm. they should check their privilege. Right. 
and they will say, well, fuck you, I'm voting for... Can I swear? I can swear. Yeah, well, yeah they'll for be sure. Like, okay, yeah. They'll be like, you know, well, fuck you, I'm voting for Trump. You know, so there are people who would think that nice. I understand that. I I actually get it. So there have been blind spots that the liberals have had, and I think that this was a good wake-up call mm-hmm. for them, and I, I'm glad it happened sooner than later. Look, yeah, you've been yeah. awesome with being generous with your time. I think this could go on for several more hours, but probably yeah. shouldn't do that. Um, yeah, just, uh, my, I, I actually would. It's just my throat. <laughs> <laughs> it's just giving so we, we didn't get a lot into your book, Atheist Muslim, or into Secular Jihadist, which is honestly killer opening, fantastic podcast. I've, I've watched a few, but mostly listened. Um, you guys have some great conversations. Really enjoy yeah. it. Where can people find out more about you? About me, I'm uh, well. My book's called The Atheist Muslim. You can Google that and find it. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, on Instagram, on all the usual stuff. Uh, you know, and yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Secular Jihadist. The podcast is called Secular Jihadist for Muslim Enlightenment. It's um, a really fun thing. I co-host it with uh, Armin Navabi. And, you know, we're, we're both very different people. We've got different styles, different approaches to the world. And that's what makes it fun. We've had some amazing guests. Uh, you know, we've had Steven Pinker. Mm-hmm. We've had Mariam Namazi. We've had uh, Sam Harris. Just a, a lot of, uh, you know, we've had Nick Cohen, the, the UK uh, journalist. Um, Graham Wood from The Atlantic. And we've had some really, really amazing conversations. Right. And most importantly, we have had secular a free-thinking, atheist-agnostic, liberal uh, people from the Muslim world, from Bangladesh, Iran, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. Malaysia, and all of these people have been, we've had them as guests, Libya as well, Jordan, uh, and they've come on the podcast to talk about their experiences and their stories, and you're going to hear some amazing stories there. I think my favorite point in that uh, conversation you guys had with Sam Harris was when for a moment, he thought that you had actually been back to Pakistan recently and wondered, how the hell did you pull that yeah, off? Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, that was, uh, that, that was a little bit of music. Yeah, he was, he was asking, can you go there? I'm like, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Ali, thank you so much. I, we, we definitely got to do this again. There's a shitload more that we could talk about and we could go on for hours. But yeah, let's, uh, let's make this happen again. Yeah, it's I good would love to. would be awesome. Same here. All right, uh, that is a wrap. If you'd like to support the Awoken Word podcast, there are many ways you can do it. You can subscribe in your app of choice. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies. They'll appreciate it too. You can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter. Our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.